0: You know, one of the best parts about being on vacation is that I felt absolutely no pressure to pay any attention to what was happening in the the so-called news. Now, to be fair, I've pretty much completely cut that toxic television news of every bias out of my life, and I don't spend a lot of time consuming from any of those sources. And let me report, when you do that, your life gets better instantly. It does, trust me. But our faithful church uh, administrative assistant, Twyla, has filled me in on what seems to be the next national crisis. You heard about this? Apparently there's going to be a shortage of turkeys at Thanksgiving. Now, I have to admit, it really didn't startle me because I'm a Christian, which means I'm free to eat ham. We all know that ham is always better than turkey. But nonetheless, people take their holidays seriously. And I'm sure that if the 2021 turkey shortage actually happens, that there will be a great wailing and gnashing of teeth across America. Thanksgiving is one of those holidays that I think we all look forward to, and people have different reasons. For some people, it's just to eat a lot and watch football. Uh, Others of you like to get the family together, uh, whatever it might be, Uh, but we look forward to those few uh, holidays, times of celebration throughout the year, and our text today from the Gospel of Mark brings us into the middle of a Jewish holiday. A holiday that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. On the 14th day of the first month of the year, uh, Jews celebrate the holiday known as Passover. Now if you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, you'd notice that uh, God had actually instructed Israel to hold two distinct celebrations in that month. The 14th day of the month is the Lord's Passover. And starting on the 15th day of the month uh, is a week-long holiday known as the Festival uh, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, I think we should go back to having week-long holidays instead of just one-day holidays. Uh, So we go from Passover that we heard about in our Scripture reading just a few minutes ago, directly into the festival or the feast of unleavened bread. Now, I don't want to assume that, that all of you uh, understand what all of that means. Uh, leaven is a word that refers to the yeast that is used to cause bread to rise. It, it's a fermentation process that, that takes place that gives us those nice, fluffy loaves of bread that we're familiar with. Uh, unleavened bread, bread without leaven or without yeast, is generally flat, more in the form of a a wafer. You can probably go to the grocery store and buy matzo, which is an unleavened bread, sort of like a, a saltine cracker. And of course, this festival in Jewish history is packed with symbolism. Throughout scripture, leaven is sort of a synonym for sin, for impurity. To this day, Orthodox Jews go through a whole process of cleansing all of the leaven, all of the yeast, and anything that contains it from their homes in the days leading up to this festival. Uh, Paul even refers to this process in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He instructs the church in Corinth to get rid, to cleanse out the leaven that was among them. He's referring to this ritual in Jewish history, that they might be, as he says, a new unleavened lump of dough. Uh, While God instituted the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as two different festivals, it's it's helpful to realize that by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, they had really functionally become one large celebration. They were sort of lumped together. On this important week for Israel, the population of Jerusalem would swell because of pilgrims. Deuteronomy 16 tells us that that the only true Passover celebration could take place only in Jerusalem. So the city was bustling at the time of the Passover with pilgrims from all over who had descended on Jerusalem to take part in the festival. And in fact, there are some external sources, some sources outside of the Bible, that record that some years around the Passover, a quarter million lambs were slaughtered that week at the temple. It's a huge, huge week in the life of the Jewish people. Well, that's the backdrop for our text for today. And with that context, I'd invite you to stand as I read our scripture text from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, starting in verse 12. This is God's word to us. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you sent your son to Jerusalem to fulfill your plan for him and ultimately for us. Lord, convict us of sin, encourage us, strengthen us, and assure us today through your holy and precious word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider this final Passover celebration that Jesus shares with his disciples, I want to direct your attention to three ideas, three concepts that we see come out of our text. And the first one is this, that the Passover prefigures Jesus' death and our salvation. Passover prefigures Jesus' death and our salvation. Let me define that word for you because it's not a word that most of us use very often. That's the word prefigure. To to prefigure is simply to give an early indication or to foreshadow something that is to come. The Passover prefigures or foreshadows, points forward to Jesus' death and to our salvation. Look at verse 12 on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. I want to stop there for just a minute. This is looking back on our scripture reading from Exodus chapter 12. God was sending his judgment against Egypt because of their wickedness, because of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. But he created, he offered a way for all who believe to be saved. All who believe in him were to take a lamb and to slaughter that lamb, and to place the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of their houses. The the blood of the Passover lamb would be the way of salvation for all who believe. And just as God had promised, the angel of death passed over those households. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. It's worth noting here that on that terrible night in Egypt, the, the firstborn children We're actually saved by the faithfulness, the faithful action of their parents, bringing them under the promise of God's saving work. And from that moment on, year after year, God's people would gather to celebrate that saving work. They would select that lamb that was without defect. They would share it in an intricate meal together. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to take part in a traditional Passover Seder meal. But everything about the Passover meal is symbolic. It points to God's saving, to God's promise, that the framework of the meal consists of really a beautiful liturgy, if you've ever been a part of it, a liturgy that dates to hundreds of years before Jesus. Most of what's read at a Passover celebration today is the same thing that was read centuries before Jesus' birth. It's a beautiful service, together. And and everything about the meal, everything about the service is symbolic. The framework consists of this liturgy, and then there's scripture readings, prayer, and and elements of of food and drink that remind the participant of the bitterness of sin and slavery and the, the sweetness of God's deliverance and salvation. And for the Christian, all these symbols take on even greater meaning. We don't have to look very deeply into scripture to see that the first Passover and the, and the subsequent Passover celebrations were given to God's people in order to point their hearts and to point their eyes forward to the true Passover lamb that would come. As John the baptizer so eloquently reminds us, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the imagery of the lamb's sacrifice wasn't limited to the Passover. It's part of the framework of Israel's relationship and fellowship with God, the the relationship that had been destroyed by sin. And so God, in in his mercy, had created a system by which sin could be atoned for. The weight of sin was so significant that the atonement that took place in Israel was always partial. It was always temporary. It was always incomplete. But it was the only way to restore a right relationship with God. That the Passover was a placeholder. Something that would do for now until the real thing arrived. And of course on this side of the cross we're able to look back and see that Jesus was the real thing to which it pointed. He was the object of the Passover. The Passover was given to prefigure, to point our eyes forward, to foreshadow Jesus' death and ultimately our salvation. You see, Jesus' blood, just like the Passover lamb, would atone for sin. It would restore mankind's relationship with God, but this time it was sufficient. This sacrifice was complete. It wasn't lacking anything. It was final. The shedding of Jesus' blood brought an end To that old system. Think of it this way. Before every wedding that I officiate, we do a a wedding rehearsal. During that rehearsal, we figure out where everyone's gonna stand, we test the music, we practice the processional and the recessional, we make sure that everyone knows what's happening throughout the service. But I want you to imagine that after the wedding ceremony, after the reception is over, after the guests leave, I bring the bridal party back into the sanctuary and we do another rehearsal and then another and then another. It'd be crazy, right? The whole purpose for which we were rehearsing had come. It had been fulfilled. It had been made complete. And that's exactly what we see with the Passover, that old meal that pointed forward to the true and better deliverer. The true and better Passover lamb was fulfilled when that lamb was slain for us when he bridged that chasm that existed between God and man and secured salvation for all who believe, that the Passover prefigures Jesus' death and our salvation. second thing I want you to see is that Jesus came to die. This second point, I want to emphasize the intentionality that we see in our text as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And and in doing that, I want to direct your attention to two different passages let's start first with verse 13 verse 13 says so he sent two of his disciples telling them go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him say to the owner of the house he enters the teacher asks where is my guest room where i may eat the passover with my disciples he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready So they are in Bethany, as we heard last week, this suburb of Jerusalem, and Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to prepare the Passover meal. Mark doesn't tell us the names, but uh, Luke tells us that it was Peter and John who went into the city to prepare the meal. Uh, The Gospels also don't tell us whether Jesus had previously arranged with the homeowner for that upper room, or whether he just knew that this room would be available. Either way, we see his divine knowledge in providing the detail about this man carrying a jar of water. It's interesting because typically, do you know who carried water? Women, right? So it would be rare for a man to be carrying a jar. This isn't something that you would just see all the time in the streets of Jerusalem. It would usually be women carrying the water. And so this is a peculiar, peculiar, it's a tough word, detail in the story that they would encounter this man carrying a jar of water, and they do, just as Jesus had told them, and they follow him, and they arrive at a house, and they speak with the homeowner, and sure enough, there's a room upstairs prepared, ready for them. Notice Jesus' intentionality with all of this. He's going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, and he's not going to allow the betrayer To know where it will take place nothing that happens on this final week of jesus life is accidental or coincidental we see this even more clearly in verse 21 verse 21 says the son of man will go just as it is written about him jesus knows full well what's going to be happening to the extent that he knew the exact moment that a servant would be carrying water into a house which would have a prepared upper room. Jesus knows what will happen. He knows who will betray him. Jesus, Jesus knows. He's not a hapless victim who falls into the hands of evil men. His life doesn't hinge on the actions of human beings. The journey into Jerusalem to be betrayed and to be arrested and to be executed it was one that he had freely chosen for himself according to his father's plan understand this that jesus was not tricked he was not manipulated he was not blindsided he was not strong-armed into this moment he chose it this day this moment the events of the next 24 hours in his life had been scripted from eternity past How do we know? Because just as Jesus said, it is written about him. As the prophet Isaiah declared, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Or as Moses declared to Isaac on that Mountain God himself will provide the lamb. It's emphasized again in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. It's a beautiful prayer. Acts 4.28, uh, a prayer in which the events of Jesus' death are referred to as, quote, the plan that God had predestined to take place. None of this was coincidental, accidental. Jesus wasn't tricked. He chose it. So you might rightfully ask, how can, how can Jesus say that it would be better for Judas to never have been born if all of this was God's plan in the first place? And that's a good question. And, and to answer that question, it requires us to admit some things about ourselves and our own limitations right away, that, that we don't see things, we don't see the world as God sees the world. We don't know what God knows. In First Samuel 16, God tells Samuel this very thing. Uh, God gives Samuel some insight into the difference between his perspective and ours. Uh, God says this, man looks at the outward appearance. So we can gaze on what's on the outside, but God looks on the heart. God has an entirely different perspective and view than we do. God isn't captive to time like we are. God is omniscient. He knows and sees all things he he can look forward, it might be kind of frightening to think about. He can look forward to the thoughts of my heart twenty years from now. So God was crafting his grand rescue plan in which his son would take the sin of the world upon himself as the lamb of God to save you and to save me. And as he was crafting that plan, he saw the selfishness and he saw, the greed that would play out in the heart of Judas and he used that sinful, selfish vessel for his own purposes as he is rightly able to do. In this Maundy Thursday or Upper Room Text, we can't miss the profound intentionality with which Jesus operates. He chose this path for you and for me. Passover prefigures Jesus' death and our salvation. Uh, Jesus came to die. And, th- and the final area of our text that I want to draw our attention to is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. While they're in the upper room eating the traditional Passover meal, Jesus takes this festival that God had put in place years before and he, he changes the focus. Within a day, Jesus would fulfill the Passover meal when he would be the Lamb of God, the true and better Passover lamb. And so he institutes a new meal, a meal that would be shared together by church for millennia. Look at verse 22. It says, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they, they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This meal that Jesus instituted goes by many names. You're probably familiar with some of them. Most of the names come from Paul's descriptions of the meal in 1 Corinthians. It's often called, the Lord's Supper, which comes from the setting that it originated in, and it also is a phrase that Paul used to describe it in 1 Corinthians 11. Sometimes it's referred to as communion, which comes from 1 Corinthians 10. It's the way that the King James translated the word koinonia, communion. Uh, some of you have grown up uh, hearing it referred to as the Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist is the Greek word for give thanks, that comes from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24, as Paul is describing this meal. So Eucharist is a biblical description of this meal. Some of you might be, I've heard this discussion before, some of you might think that the word Eucharist is purely a Roman Catholic name for this meal. But actually, I, I did some looking around. I, I saw that this was used, the, the earliest use of the word Eucharist to describe the meal was used by Church Father uh, Justin Martyr in about the year 140. So it very much predates even the Roman Catholic Church. I often refer to it as the Lord's table, an emphasis on Jesus as the host of the meal, Jesus the one doing the blessing, giving thanks, serving it to us. All of these are biblical descriptions for this meal that Jesus institutes in the upper room with his disciples. Acts chapter 2, we get this glimpse into the life of the early church, and we see that in the days following Jesus' ascension, that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, Scripture says. There's a lot of early church writing that would lead us to believe that the most early churches uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper likely every single week. If you've done any study on the subject, you know that Scripture doesn't tell us how to partake in the Lord's Supper. Uh, I grew up going forward and kneeling at a rail. Uh, Beautiful memories of that. Uh, Previous to COVID, we would distribute the trays and you would uh, take from the trays and we would partake together at the same time. Uh, For now, for the time being, we come forward and receive the elements, mostly to limit the amount of fingers that uh, touch those wafers before you eat them. There's no biblically mandated mode or method Through which we take communion i've I've had this conversation with a number of you Uh, some of you a a couple people have mentioned that you really like coming forward it's sort of this public statement that you're a sinner in need of god's grace others of you would prefer that we go back to the old method and we may do that someday i can sympathize with that i i've shared with a few of you that Uh, A good rule of thumb is that if the mode of communion, if the way that we partake in communion bothers us, we might be missing the point. We might be missing what God is doing. We might be thinking of communion as something that we do rather than something that God is giving us. You see, Jesus said, take, receive, this is my body, this is my blood. Listen to those words again, take. Receive. This is my body. This is my blood. So I want to talk for a minute about what Jesus offers us in the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus offer us in the Lord's Supper? First, uh, Jesus gives us the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew's account of this very night, he adds a curious addition that Mark leaves out in his reference to. Jesus' blood. Jesus says, according to Matthew, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Lord's Supper, we receive the body and blood of Jesus. And what does the blood of Jesus accomplish? The Forgiveness of sins. Some people really struggle with this. We need not struggle with this. Jesus said, this is my body this is my blood. We believe it and we receive it and all that comes with it. Second, we are united with the body of Christ. This is maybe seen most clearly in 1 Corinthians as Paul addresses some abuses that were going on uh, surrounding communion in that church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says these words that I read every time we take communion. Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread or one loaf. The meal was given, this is so important, this meal of grace was given to us, not only for our vertical relationship with the Lord, but for our horizontal relationship with one another. Communion is necessarily corporate. Communion isn't something that you do alone by yourself. Communion is sharing together in the body of Christ. It's always about us being united together, us confessing together our sin, our need for both the body and blood of Christ. This is one of the things that I love most about the Lord's Supper, that Jesus doesn't just give us his blood. He doesn't just wash away our sin, give us the assurance that our sin has been atoned for. He also gives us His body. That body is the church. These people around you. This is one of the gifts of communion. That we become one. To receive communion is to confess and to believe that I alone am insufficient. That I wasn't created to exist alone. That I wasn't created to live a life of faith alone. That I need you. That I need the body. Every time we partake in communion, I have the the great gift of looking you all in the face as you come forward. And knowing that everyone who walks up this aisle to receive needs this as much as I do. Needs the promise of the forgiveness of sins as much as I need it. When you look around during communion, every single person in this room needs God's grace just as you do. And so we have this great gift of the ground being leveled. We are all people in need. We are all people who need our sins to be forgiven and we need the assurance that our sins are forgiven, that we are the church together. So we receive the, the forgiveness of sins and the assurance that comes with it. We're united as the body of Christ. And third, I want you to see this, that we when we take the Lord's Supper, receive the presence of Jesus. Imagine Jesus in that upper room, passing that cup around to them to drink, and they take the drink, and they, Jesus says, this is my blood. Think about those words. There is no human experience in which God is more present Than in the Lord's Supper. There is no human experience. There is no moment in your life. Where God is more present. And more real than in the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus said. This is my body. This is my blood. That's the beautiful thing about this meal. That Jesus has promised to be present. In, with, and under these tangible elements. Think about how Paul words it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? That's that word that I mentioned earlier, that word koinonia. It means a deep, intense fellowship, a a close, united relationship, a deep connection. These elements bring us into deep fellowship and relationship with the body and with our God. They are a participation. When you hear Jesus say, this is my body and this is my blood, believe it. It's a gift It's to be received. Jesus offers himself to us. The true and better Passover lamb who was slain for our sin, offers himself to us. Christ is present and Christ is received by all who partake in communion. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? When we take communion together, we together receive forgiveness and the promise and assurance of forgiveness. We are united together as the body of Christ and we come into the very presence of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is the host of the meal. Just as he was in that upper room when he passed that bread and passed that cup, Jesus is the primary actor. Jesus is the one accomplishing something. When we partake together, we certainly remember what Christ has done. We look back We also receive from him. We are assured together of our forgiveness. Our faith is strengthened. We are united as one body. And then hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance. But it's also more than that. It's a meal in which we receive, a meal in which we proclaim that I need what Christ accomplished for me. When you partake, you proclaim for all to see that Jesus is what you need, that you are not self sufficient, that you are dependent upon His grace today and tomorrow and until He returns. Jesus offers us himself, this morning. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. And we're grateful for the gift that is this meal of grace that we have the chance to share in today. God, we confess that we are sinners, that we will forever be in need of your mercy and your grace. Forgive us, cleanse us, renew us, and strengthen us with your presence.